We have been doing, uh, in fact, this will be the last week, this series called Shift. And Jesus has essentially been trying to help us see the world as it could be. Because we are reminded uh, every week of just how bad things are. From the fiscal cliff to gun control to cancer, you name it. We're reminded of how bad the world is. We're reminded of how selfish people are, how shallow people are, how cruel people can be. Jesus, through the parables in the New Testament, pulls back the curtain and says, this is the world as God intended it to be. Join in. The kingdom of God is not something that's going to happen someday. The kingdom of God is birthing right now. It is here. Join it. Be a kingdom person, a son or a daughter of the king. Shift is is his way to invite us in and, and call us to live in this kingdom reality now. Parables are the way he does this. Um, mostly in the teaching of Jesus, he doesn't just come right out and say something, right? He brings us in through these stories. Now these, and we've talked about this, these are not cute little bedtime stories that Jesus tells us. These are not sermon illustrations that Jesus uses to get a laugh or keep people's attention. These are insidious. These are subversive. These are what I called a few weeks ago. These are are spiritual IEDs right? On the surface, everything looks innocent enough. Everything looks just fine and just safe. Go ahead, walk on through the story. We've got farmers and we've got seed. We've got a tax collector here. We've got grapes over here. We've got a prodigal son returning home. We've got sheep. All of these, to those folks in those days, normal everyday stuff looks so innocent. So people just kind of walk right in and then bam, Jesus gets you in there, and he blows up your perspectives, right? He blows up our jaded, cynical, distorted views and explodes in this reality of the kingdom of God. Our ideas about grace Our ideas about money, our ideas about prayer, our ideas about forgiveness, our ideas about uh, about all of these sorts of justice, all these sorts of poverty, all these things get caught up in the blast zone of the kingdom of God. Parables are places where the first are last. These stories are the places where the 99 are left behind and the one who is lost is pursued. These parables are places where whatever you did for the least of these, you did for Jesus. Parables are are places where the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Parables are places where whoever does not have, as we saw last week in Matthew 25, whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him and given to someone else. 
These blow our mind. They are supposed to, all right? They're supposed to surprise us. They're supposed to, supposed to disturb us. They're supposed to astonish us. But here's the thing, though. At least for me, par- parables don't always work, right? Just be honest with you. At least for me, parables don't always work. Sometimes, as the master taught, I have eyes, but I don't see. Sometimes I have ears, but I don't really hear. Sometimes my own selfishness and superficiality work like thick steel plating around my Humvee heart. And the explosion of the gospel can't get through. Eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. At other moments, I feel the full weight of the story of God. I discover what the parable reveals about me. And I see what the parable reveals about the kingdom. And I see the chasm that exists between me and the kingdom. And I'm reminded through these stories, and I hope you have been too. I'm reminded that much within me remains to be converted. I am reminded that much needs to be blown up. And so, Lord Jesus, give us ears to hear. Let's pray as we begin our time together. Lord Jesus, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. We want to know your truth. We want to believe your truth. We want to fully immerse ourselves in submission to, obedience to, your commands, and your truth. Make us followers of yours, Jesus, and not just friends of yours. Make us disciples of yours. Build in us what needs to be built. Blow up what needs to be detonated. Convert us. Convert us into those who know you, who know your heart, and who order our lives around what we experience in you. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. In your name, Jesus. In your name, amen. The LA, LA Times ran a story a few years back. Interesting little story, personal anecdote, a guy telling about going back to a house that he used to live in like 20 years ago. So he goes back to this house, and I, I, I don't know if he was in the neighborhood, he's driving by, but he goes back to this house, knocks on the door, uh, the current residence answer the door, and he says, look, I used to live here 20 years ago, um, feeling a little nostalgic, uh, feeling a little homesick or whatever. Would you let me just kind of walk around the house and remember a little bit, kind of collect some memories here today? And, and the, the owner said, sure, come on in. So he went in the bedroom, the kitchen, and different places in the house, finally ended up up in the attic. And strangely enough, true story here, strangely enough, he found an old coat that used to belong to him, right? That were that he had used 20 years ago. He found this coat. He tried it on to see how it fit. It was a little bit tighter now, all right? But he couldn't resist just the natural, instinctual urge to drop his hands into the pockets. And in one of the pockets, he found a little slip of paper. Pulled it out, looked at it. It was a ticket stub, a yellowing, aged stub to retrieve some shoes that he had dropped off at the shoe shop to get repaired, right? 
on a whim, just thought, why not? I'm in the neighborhood. I'll go by and see if that old shop is still there. So he drove up. Sure enough, there it was. It was open. He went inside with this ticket and and, and waited for the clerk to come out of the back to to attend him, Um, passed on the ticket stub, and with a bit of a smirk on his face said, I'd like to pick up my shoes. He had forgotten all about these shoes when he moved, right? They'd just been sitting in there somewhere for 20 years. So he said, I'd like to pick up my shoes. The clerk said, all right, disappeared back into the back for two or three minutes, finally came out and said, um, I'm sorry, they'll be ready next Thursday. <laughs> be ready next Thursday. I don't know much about the guiding purposes of this shoe store, but I can imagine um, it's a place that is used to operating by delay. These folks that work at this shoe store are procrastinators. It's like, oh boy, the guy came. We got to actually fix the shoes. Unbelievable. So what is lost when I postpone, when I delay, when I wait? What is the cost of procrastination? What is the price tag on that? I mean, there's actually been... um, quantifiable research done. I won't share a lot of it, but some people have actually asked the question, how much does it cost? Like in dollars or in health? In dollars, a couple years back, um, they did this study and they found out that over half a billion dollars was unnecessarily spent on taxes, right? Taxes that didn't need to be paid. Um, Over uh, half a billion dollars in unnecessary taxes, it was paid by hurried and harried late filers, right? Um, They'd hit deadline after deadline, finally it's like, I gotta get this done. And so they ended up paying hundreds of millions of dollars they didn't need to pay. Um, A university study showed that that procrastinators have higher stress levels, showed that uh, there are more household accidents in procrastinating homes than non-procrastinating homes. Um, Another study showed, and I don't know how they came up with this, but they showed that 95% of procrastinators wish that they weren't procrastinators, I guess they just haven't gotten around to addressing that, you know. Um, What about putting God off, though? That's what I thought about when I I saw this information on procrastination. What is the, what's the price tag there? What is the, what's the spiritual cost of saying no to God or saying maybe later to God and essentially never getting around to it? Or the price tag of saying yes to God, but really doing nothing? to change. Matthew chapter 21, our last parable in this series, our last story of Jesus. Matthew 21, we'll start in verse 28. Again, this is from the message. Tell me what you think of this story, Jesus said. A man had two sons. He went up to the first and said, son, Go out for the day and work in the vineyard. The son answered, I don't want to. Later on, he thought better of it and went. The father gave the same command to the second son. He answered, sure, glad to. But he never went. Which of the two sons did what the father asked? They said, the first. Jesus said, yes, and I tell you that crooks and whores are going to precede you into God's kingdom, 
John came to you showing you the right road. You turned up your noses at him, but the crooks and whores believed him. Even when you saw their changed lives, you didn't care enough to change and believe him. Son number one says the right thing and does nothing. Son number two says the wrong thing and ends up deciding to do the right thing. The question Jesus asked may have been the easiest question he ever asked. Who did what the father asked? I mean, this isn't calling for any kind of value judgment. This isn't really a head scratcher kind of question. Obviously, of the two sons, the one who did what he asked is son number two. Even though he said no, or son number one rather, even though he said no, he ended up saying yes with his actions, with his lifestyle. It is a quantifiable, objective sort of answer. Now, when Jesus is telling these stories, it is always interesting and helpful to go back and think, who is he talking to? I mean, this is clearly not a story to the, if you have the NIV, it's a little less abrasive in language. It's prostitutes and tax collectors, right? This is not a story to those people, obviously. So who is this story to? If this is not a story written to desperate sinners whose lives are entangled in all sorts of darkness, who is this story written to? Matthew 21, verse 23. We find out that Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, right? What sorts of people show up in the temple courts? Suspect very good people, temple-y sorts of people, right? He is in the temple courts. And Jesus says that he is talking to the chief priests and the elders, right? Now, I don't need to spell this out to you. These are, these are really good people, right? These are really good people. These are the type of people who, when the near new year rolled in, they got the daily Torah reading Bible plan on their iPhone. I mean, these are the type of people who knew all of the right words to pray when they prayed. They probably even memorized some of the prayers from the Bible. Um, they were people who, who, who not only sang songs of praise in the temple courts, they had probably memorized long ago many of the songs that they were singing. Their lips could just kind of move and say the words, you know. These were people who were all about words. These were people who were all about words. They read God's word. They praised God with their words. Their lives were, though, unresponsive. They said one thing. Their lives said another thing. You with me? I mean, their lips said yes to God. Their lives said, eh, to God. Their lips said yes, their lives said no. And then there were this collection of crooks and whores. I think that's a good translation. That's really the weight Jesus wants us to get. Here are you guys, all great, squeaky clean, know the Bible from cover to cover, and here is this other group. 
This would be the crooks and whores group. Um, guess what? They're already in the kingdom of God. They have preceded you. They got there weeks ago. You're not there. And even after seeing the gospel at work in their lives, even after seeing these people respond, say yes with their lives to God, even after witnessing these testimonials of the power of the gospel, you continue to say no with your life. Oh, you're still singing the song. You're still praying to Yahweh, but you just keep saying no with your life. Now, this other group over here, this soiled and sinful group, um, they didn't necessarily have all of the right doctrine like figured out. Um, they didn't know how to act in a church service. They didn't really know what to say when it was time to pray to God. But their hearts responded to the gospel. They recognized good news when they heard it. And they said yes to, to God with all that they were. If one was to judge by appearances, by the way things looked, um, by the sound of things, they were the lost ones and the priests and the elders were the saved ones, right? But how much you show God's word is infinitely more important than how much you know of God's word. Let me put it in another way. If you don't obey the little bit you know, okay, follow me on this. If you don't obey or practice the little bit you know, you cannot compensate for that by learning a whole bunch of new stuff. That makes sense, right? Okay, I'm not going to do anything God asked me to do, but I'm going to learn a whole bunch of what he asked me to do. It's like the, you know, the person, I'm sure there's some here today who came up with the New Year's resolution. I'm going to drop some weight this year. I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I, I, I'm sure we've got a couple of dozen folks here like, I'm going to drop some weight this year. 2013, this is the year I'm going to get in shape. And it's like a person like that who made that resolution, great resolution, amen, yeah, get yourself in shape. And they bought, you know, the best, whatever, the South Beach diet or whatever, whatever the new dieting stuff is. They bought the books, they read the books, um, they downloaded the app on the phone, like the weight tracker app. Um, they bought a, um, a membership at the local gym, all this stuff. But they're not saying no to the donut tray. Really? They're not waking up early to go to that gym. They got the membership card. They know a lot of stuff about health. They know a lot of stuff about proper nutrition. They know a lot of stuff about what exercise burn the most carbs or all that kind of stuff. But they simply don't act on any of it. Jesus essentially saying, this is what, what you guys are like. You're, you're fat. <laughs> you are obese on the word of God. You are spiritually overweight. But you're not doing any of it. Right? Now, 
important to say this. There is also a very positive message in this story if you pay attention. There is a beautiful idea that is embedded in both the beginning and the conclusion of this story. And it is the the powerful idea that our God is a God of second chances, right? It is the mercy of God. The grace of God is clearly embedded in this story. So here's, here's what we know about the story. One son says no, but ends up saying yes by responding, going out and working. Um, One son says yes, ends up doing nothing. Now, are you a father or a mother? You're going to get this if you are, right? Are you a father or mother? Think about this scenario. And that's what I was doing this week. I'm thinking, okay, so let's say I ask Claudia and David Y'all need to get out in the front yard and put up all of the Christmas decorations, right? Which at our house would not be a very big task. There wasn't very much out there. There was a little bit, right? I want you guys out in the yard to put up our Christmas decorations. Now, if you're a father or mother, think with me on this. Let's imagine David said, no, I don't want to. I don't know about you. I've got several responses in my quiver back here that I can fire back at David. But there will be a response. In this story, the father has no response. Just goes to son number two, right? I would be like, you will get out there and put up those electronic snowmen or, and then I will list out consequences of not putting up the electronic snowmen. There will be consequences. But in this story, the father asks and then waits. You see where I'm going with this? There is something of God's heart in that. And I see, once again, the difference between me and the difference between the heavenly father. There is a gentle patience as God lays out his will and then waits for a response. Jesus is not, now let's put this footnote on here. Jesus is not excusing procrastination. He's not saying procrastination is a good thing. All the same, he is showing us that God's patience and redemptive grace are present in the, in the story as they are in all of his stories. Now remember, son number two's response to the father. Son number two said, yeah, I'll get out there and put up the Christmas decorations. And son number two did absolutely nothing. Well, the father leaves it at that in the story. um, Son number one who said no has time to rethink. Has time to reconsider. Has time to change his response. And make the decision after the fact to honor the Father's request. That's mercy. That's mercy. So the story is really a patient invitation to repent, to change, to do an about-face, to say yes to God 
even if you have said no a thousand times. And for those who have ears to hear, for those who have eyes to see, the invitation is an amazing invitation and is a -a one-of-a-kind invitation, right? Because really what Jesus is inviting us into, is patiently inviting us into, is inviting you into, is first to recognize the fact that you are loved. That you are, in God's eyes, son or daughter. You are precious to the Father. No matter how you feel, no matter what kind of day you're having, no matter what people around you think or say about you, no matter how things are going, the Father longs for you to know and you to experience the love that he has for you. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, and this we know through Jesus Christ, through the gospel story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. First, we know as proof because of the sacrifice of Jesus that he really does love us. Secondly, we know that the Father has acted on his love and has dealt a mortal blow to your two greatest enemies, death and sin. You are invited to accept the victory that Jesus won for you on the cross and through his powerful resurrection from the dead, a victory over all of your sin and a victory over the last enemy, death. And finally, you're invited to believe that God really does want what's best. He wants what's best for you. You may not always understand his commandment. You may not always understand the teaching that you encounter in the word. But there is an invitation to believe that he, as your father, who loves you deeply, really does want what's best. He does. Wants to bless your life, wants to bless your marriage, wants to bless your relationships, wants to bless your finances, wants to bless your ministry and your purpose for living in every way and beyond that you can imagine. So when you know this Father God that Jesus talks about, you want to obey him. You with me? Obedience doesn't become a weight on your shoulders. It becomes a joy. Because obedience means opening new chapters of this amazing life that God has set out for me. Disobedience means locking those. I want to obey. I want to experience all that this powerful, everlasting, loving Father has for me. I don't want to lock those chapters. I want to see the stories that he has written for us together. And so I obey. And that's, that's why you can read somebody like David in the Old Testament, broken life there, but a guy who loved God, a guy who knew what it was to repent. You can look at David's life and his writings and see this thirst for 
the word and for following the word so as not to miss out on anything. I mean, we won't read Psalm 119. That would take another hour and a half. But I'll give you one verse out of Psalm 119. How about verse 14? Because 119 is all about all of the good stuff God wants to do through your obedience to his word. All of the doors he wants to open for you, all the blessings he wants to shower on you. Here's what it says in verse 14. David says, I rejoice in following your statutes. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Not just memorizing, not just studying, but following. Because there is wealth there. There is wealth for my inner life. There is wealth for every relationship I engage in. There is wealth when troubling times are on me. There is wealth when my tank is empty. There is wealth when I don't know what to do. There's wealth concerning my future. There's wealth in in obeying your statutes. 